0: So as we look to the Lord to help us, we're thinking about this subject of being a Christian in this world where there are non-believing powers, authorities, as it says, it translated as governing authorities, uh, the state, and so on. It's a bit of an unusual subject, but actually, it, it's there in the Bible, and it's actually a very important subject because it touches the lives of each one of us uh, and all Christians throughout this period of history, uh, we, we don't live in heaven yet. We live on this earth where there are governments of all sorts of shapes and sizes, uh, all sorts of different methods of government, but there's, there's always something. So I've tried to think of some questions. I suppose they're a little bit slanted towards the situation that we're in. Uh, so here's a question. Uh, if I stick to this 20 mile an hour limit on my way to church I'm going to be late wouldn't it be better for me to go faster to be at church because that would please God that might be a very relevant question to some people But we so there's a question here's another question uh, the government so this is particularly for us isn't it the government have redefined marriage They're supposed to be Christian. Aren't they, therefore, all hypocrites, cheats, and deserves to be ridiculed, pilloried, shot, whatever? There's another question. It's sort of about attitude to the government when it doesn't do what you think it ought to do. Uh, The present government have made it illegal to pray. But Paul says, I should submit to the governing authorities, so what should I do? Now, the present government hasn't made it illegal to pray, but in the days of Daniel, of course, the government did make it illegal to pray. And in the days of Paul, things like that were on the cards in that under certain circumstances, you had to pray to the emperor. And if you didn't, then you were in trouble. So here's a question about well I'll tell you what about question one I think is about what is really spirituality what does it look like is it all to do with being in church or is there more to it than that question two is about what in a godly way and in a realistic way we should expect of government and question three is to do with the limits of obedience and where we have to start not doing what the government asks us to do and There are many more things that we could think about as well in this very big subject. Uh, So for example, we live in a parliamentary democracy, so it's part of our citizenship that we can question our representatives and indeed choose our representatives. So we've got an interaction and a responsibility and a possibility that in the days of empire, they didn't really have. So there's a lot going on there. So we'll do our best to look at it this morning in a fairly straightforward way. So let's look, first of all, at the context. Excuse me. (coughs) Why does Paul suddenly go from loving one another in the end of chapter 12 into chapter 13, submitting to the governing authorities It does fit. Uh, In the immediate context, he's chalked in chapter 12, verse 2, this is sort of his main theme, uh, living in a way which tests and approves God's will. Chapter 2, verse 2, it says he's good, pleasing, perfect will. So the idea of good, the goodness of God's will is there. And if you noticed in chapter 13, there's a lot about good doing good what is good in society and so on and there's another link from the end of chapter 12 because he had said at the end of chapter 12 in verse 19 do not take revenge but leave room for God's wrath it is mine to avenge I will repay says the Lord and he's talking about a situation where you might have got ill treated and he says it's not right for you on a personal level to take vengeance, you know, suppose, so suppose somebody's uh, scratched your car and you know who it is, it's not right for you to go back and scratch their car, but there are, uh, there are provisions ahead of the final day of judgment to, to put that right or to bring justice into that situation and that's where the governing authorities come in. So there is a a link in the immediate context. In the larger context, Paul is talking to people in the world of the gospel. So it's not just limited to the nation of Israel, but uh, spread out into the whole world. And you remember that he's thinking then of the Gentile world, Which is under sin. He's spent a long time saying this. He's not being rosy eyed about it. He's not saying, oh, you all live in a wonderful world. He's saying, no, you live in the world where the nations, the Gentiles, they're sinful. Uh, There's the vast spell of idolatry cast over the empire. They worship idols. And the emperor, well, we know he's not a Christian, he's a pagan. And as history goes on, he will be expecting people to worship him as if he were a god. So he's realistic about that. That's part of the context. And then for his Jewish readers, they too are under sin. Uh, Jerusalem and the land of Israel was occupied by Rome. So they have known for quite a while what it is to deal with the authorities that don't believe the Bible. And many of the Jews have been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, so they too have faced this issue of how you live when, you, uh, when you're in a, a, a context where people don't believe the Bible. And of course, there is the Jewish thing that they, they actually have rejected their king. That's, uh, so that's the larger context. And then you can fit it into a context of the whole Bible if you wish to take a really big view of it. So the idea of the pagan nations has been in the Bible for a long, long time. So Israel was told to be God's particular people. So there they are. The pagan nations are all round, but Israel is different from those nations, and that she's always been told to be different. She has different food laws and a different ethos, a different way of doing things, and of course, a different God. Israel has always been meant to be a witness to the nations. The nations were supposed to look on and say, "What what wise laws you have! What a wonderful God, who hears you when you pray to you." We wish we could be like you. And of course, there's another strand of the of the of the Old Testament which sees Israel in conflict with the nations and that she will be triumphant over the nations and the king, as we were singing right at the beginning, will rule wherever the sun uh, makes his journey. So the king of Israel will, according to the Hebrew scriptures, rule over Egypt and he will rule over Africa and he will rule over Europe and he will rule over all the different places. And we've got another couple of things here during the history of Israel that at certain times her relationship with the nations became one of they dominated Israel. And the nations attacked Israel and were allowed to defeat Israel and either defeat her or defeat her and take her into exile. So Assyria did that, and Babylon did that. And what's going on there? And the prophets say God is using the nations as a stick in his hand to punish Israel, to show her that she's been disobedient. So apparently, even in the Old Testament, God uses foreign kings to do his will and fulfill his purposes, even though they don't realize that's what's happening, even though it never entered their heads to do anything that the God of Israel wanted, and yet that's exactly what they did. And you could add to that the lessons of exile, when they were taken to a foreign country. You remember there's a a memorable verse in Jeremiah which says, you're in a foreign city, don't try and put bombs under the bridges and knock out their infrastructure. Pray for the peace of the city. Because if the city where God's put you, even if it's a foreign city, even, if that, even though it's a foreign city, if it prospers, you will prosper. Pray for the peace of the city. So they had to learn something of coexistence and they also had to learn how to be different. So for example, the book of Esther is dealing with this whole matter of how do you keep your uh, spirituality in the midst of a foreign regime and can God work through that remember that that Esther said you've been put here for for just such a time as this so I put that in a, a, a context of the whole Bible the whole thing of God's people and the nations is not a new subject there's a lot already there so that's context Are you with me so far? Yep. So let me, before we get right into the passage, I would like to suggest two important ideas that will help us to think how this fits. And the first idea is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, by which I mean that God rules as king over everything. God rules as king over everything. So he rules in the hearts of his willing people. So if you're a Christian, you would say, absolutely, God is my king. What he says, I will do. Where he sends me, I will go. God rules in the hearts of his willing people. But there's more to God's sovereignty than that. God rules over things. The world of stars and planets and subatomic particles and Higgs boson and the world of animals and the sun and the rain they're not outside God's control. He, he, he rules in a different way to the willing rule over his people, but he still rules over, well, it says, doesn't it, Jesus says he sends the sun and the rain on the good and the bad alike. So he rules over everything in that sense. And then also he rules in his sovereignty over unwilling people. Unwilling kings, unwilling nations, rebels, he rules over them, their fortunes, their history, even the decisions that they make where they think this is nothing to do with God at all. So, for example, Pharaoh in Egypt said, I'm going to do what I think. I don't recognize the Lord God of Israel. I will do my own thing. And God says, well, there you are doing that, but actually, you're just serving me. I've raised you up for this very purpose, to show my power. And the same is true of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who said, look at me, look at the empire I've got. And God said to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I've given you this power. You didn't get it yourself, it's given by God. So, first thought to have in the back of our minds, the sovereignty of God the real extent to which God rules. There aren't little pockets where God says, oh dear, I can't do very much about that. Oh dear, that's happening all by itself. I can't touch that. It's all under God's rule, one way or another, the sovereignty of God. Second important idea, we can call it common grace, which is a very funny word for it, because common might have the Idea of being rather unworthy, but it doesn't, it's not meant to mean that, it's meant to be spread very wide, all over the place. God's grace, His kindness, which goes everywhere. So, I've put it in other words that God has not totally abandoned the world He created, God has not totally abandoned the world He created. So I'm thinking of his little timeline going from creation so that's how God originally made things to the fall which is how things are now that sin is in this world and then going forward to glory which is what it will be one day. And God rules over all of these. If we think of, if we think of creation though we know that the world fell very quickly but the idea of the created world is that God is the king over everything so I put a crown right at the top there and that underneath him there are other structures there are big kings and lesser kings and and so on so there's, there are authority structures of various sorts Which are not the function of sin, but the function of creation. So, within that, there is the structure, for example, of the family. So, I've put a a husband and wife there, and children, and there is an order built into creation, and this is a good gift of God. So, that's how things were in creation, and now we live in a world where we have sin. So I've put a little picture of the fall. So we still have big kings and lesser kings and we still have people being married and we still have families. It's not so simple now because sometimes you get conflict between kingdoms like we have in Ukraine at the moment or in Syria. And sometimes we have conflict within the family and sometimes we have children falling out with their other other brothers and sisters. So sin affects these things. But the order is still there. God hasn't totally withdrawn all his good gifts. We still have order. We still have marriage. We still have family. So in this world, there's a mixture of order and disorder, God still in his common grace gives us these good gifts, of course in the world to come it will all be fulfilled but I wasn't really going to talk about that uh, today, so that's two ideas to have in our mind the sovereignty of God and what we call common grace and the more you think about it, uh, the more wonderful God's sovereignty is And the more wonderful his common grace is, because we are beneficiaries of his common grace all the time. So the sun is shining in, and we're grateful for the sun. Well, God sends the sun to everybody, whether they're in church or not, doesn't he? And so on. So at this point, I have to say, I I realized that I had only got a limited number of acetate sheets so my writing gets smaller as I try to fit in what I had to say in all and all the other sheets so just be warned here's something that Jesus said and I think what Paul is saying comes from this Jesus was asked about paying taxes and just bring that down a little bit it is in red not very good And Jesus said quite significantly about, he asked for a coin, it had Caesar's head on it, and he said to his questioners, give to God what is God's, and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Caesar was the Roman emperor, which is a very interesting thing to say, isn't it? So Jesus doesn't say Caesar has no business here in this world because he's not a Christian, He says no he does have business and he says that you as the followers of Jesus need to relate to that. You are in some sort of contract with Caesar. You give him what he rightly deserves. And I think what Paul is saying comes off the back of what Jesus said. So let me try and give you number one a main principle, number two an explanation, number three a motivation, number four some specifics and as we go through they get shorter and shorter as I realize I've got to put it into uh, less and less space. So here's the main principle, chapter 13, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Let's think about that. Here's God in his sovereignty who rules over everything. And here we have The rulers, perhaps we have Caesar, maybe we have Pontius Pilate, but we have various types of authority, and then we have people who either fit into that pattern or resist it. So let's notice simply what it says. It refers to these authorities several times the governing authorities, there is no authority except that which God has. Established, The authorities have been established by God. And he repeats this, that God has put them there. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. An interesting statement, isn't it? But he is quite specific about it. Whether it's David Cameron or whether it's Jason Kitcat, or whether it's Caesar or whether it's Pontius Pilate, they have a degree of authority and there is a real sense that God has allowed them to have that or God has put them there. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that Jesus said to Caesar, uh, not to Caesar, to Pontius Pilate when he was interrogated, you have no authority except what was given you from above. It's a very interesting statement relating to the sovereignty of God and the method of his common grace. And so Paul says, every soul must submit to the governing authorities. So NIV translates it everyone. The Greek is a bit more specific. Every soul Oh, that's quite a strong statement, isn't it? Every soul should submit to the governing authorities. The word submit, there's a little bit of a word play in here on uh, this idea of submission. It's to do with forming a pattern and the pattern being in the right order and in the right place. So I've done a clunky translation to take the proper place Everyone must take the proper place regarding the governing authorities. There's quite a bit about placing things. Come back to that in a moment. And Paul spells out the opposite. Since God has put those people there, verse two, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So he says you're not to rebel. Because if you rebel against the authorities. In a sense you're rebelling against God. He doesn't actually put it quite as starkly as that. But he says you're rebelling against what God has instituted. And in doing that you bring judgment on yourself. Uh, another interesting thought of bringing judgment on oneself that's what he says and that's his main principle now i've got my notes slightly mixed up here that's the main principle and i point out that it's a general principle so that's the statement of the general principle it's not an inflexible principle and he hasn't said all he's going to say in other words, there are going to be tweaks and exceptions in the same sort of way that Jesus said that there's not, not to be divorce, but he made some exceptions. Or he made an exception in one of the Gospels. So let me say this is a general principle and it needs have more said about it. And one thing I'll say at this point is the, the idea of submission is finding the proper place finding the proper place. So I would suggest that if the authorities command, shall we say, they command all the men to take up weapons and go and commit genocide against the inhabitants of West Sussex, shall we say, that that is not a proper thing for them to be doing It's not their proper place for them to tell us to do things like that and therefore, we're we're not in our proper place if we unquestionably obey when they tell us something to do that they shouldn't be telling us to do. Uh, I think that's a little bit of an unrealistic example in in the case of uh, West Sussex, but it wasn't an unrealistic example in the case of Nazi Germany here's another example if the state tells us that the state is to be worshipped which of course in the book of Revelation is exactly what the state does try to do that is moving out of its proper place and we are not in our proper place if we go along with what the state tells us to do in that case so the the duty of a Christian if told to worship the emperor and say the emperor is Lord as David was saying the other day is to say I'm sorry I respectfully decline to do that because the emperor is many things but he is not Lord and he is not to be worshipped Jesus is Lord and I will only worship him and that was one of the things that got Christians into trouble and indeed uh, led them to their deaths so as the main principle and a little bit about um, what that does and doesn't say. Let's move on to an explanation because he gives us a bit of an explanation of this. So the next verses say, verse 3 4 Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you for he is God's servant to do you good but if you do wrong be afraid for he does not bear the sword for nothing he is God's servant an agent of wrath or an avenger of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer so you see that Paul neatly divides it into the ideas of right and wrong Uh, so there's the whoops there's in the middle up here is the ruling authority whether it's the judge or the police officer or the politician or the king or whatever it is or all of that system linked up together and he says he says that do you want to be free from the fear of the one of authority then do what is right and he will commend you so here we've got the one in authority and here we've got the where good is happening so the little person there does good and if they do good let me find my place lost it if you do good, he will praise you. Where does that say? He will commend you? Uh, do what is right. end of verse three, and he will commend you. So you do what is right, he will commend you. It actually says he will praise you. Apparently, in those days, the Roman society used to have a sort of new year's honors list of benefactors, public benefactors, and they write their names up maybe that's what Paul has in mind wouldn't be such a bad idea for um uh, for governments to do more of that these days, although I suppose it would be open to abuse. And then he says, on the other hand, well here's somebody running off with swag, except I couldn't write swag in there, it's too small. Uh, So they're doing evil. And there is another set of relationships that go on there. So so verse three, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. So there's a, a, a relationship of fear between the authorities and the ones who do wrong and he says that's absent for the or ought to be absent for, the, for those who do right and then he also adds in um, he also adds in verse four which I've omitted bear with me. So, over on this side, uh, we've got fear and we've got punishment. It's in verse 4. He brings punishment on the wrongdoer. And I would also like to put in there the sword, which I didn't put. And he is referring to the ability of the state to use lethal force. And he is well he's certainly not criticising it he's saying it's legitimate for the state to have lethal force on its side. Verse 4 if you do wrong be afraid for he does not bear the sword for nothing. So I would not automatically say that it is wrong for a state to have the death penalty I think that's that's what Paul is saying there may be other reasons for not using the death penalty but it's not automatically out of order for the state to do that and I'd also like to point out to you in this way of explanation the words he uses about this representative of authority and he twice uses the word servant so let's see if we can find that in verse 4 he is God's servant to do you good and then in verse 4 again he is god's servant an agent of wrath for the for those who do wrong uh, and i always find this interesting the word for servant is the word deacon uh, diaconos uh, we have deacons in the church and as it as it happens in a sense david cameron is a deacon too uh, and Inspector Gareth Davis is one of God's deacons. And Councillor Jason Kitkat is one of God's deacons. And uh, Michael Gove is one of God's deacons. Uh, God has all sorts of deacons uh, serving him in various ways. They don't always do a good job of it, but that's the position that they hold. They are God's servants. And it also says in verse 6, the authorities are God's servants uses another word there which is like the word for priest it is actually not only used as priest but it's just interesting isn't it how strongly the bible says even although these people might make a a, a bad job of it and even though they might be madly badly motivated etc there's still thereby god's mysterious say so they're God's deacons God's servants so in uh, a little bit of summary for that the authorities are there uh, to prevent to deter to punish wrong and to uh, so they ought to do that with fairness we should expect that of them and ask them to do that they should if they're deterring wrong they should deter with I think a proportional deterrence so it used to be the case under English law that if you stole a sheep you would be hanged which seems uh, and the idea being a deterrent so that the 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 people who are sheep owners could uh, be assured that they'd have the same number of sheep as the week went by rather than finding they'd been nicked by people I don't think that that is a good law because the deterrent is disproportionate to the crime. Uh, So we should be looking for fairness and proportionality and things like that. I'm not an expert in law, but I'm sure there is a lot of principles there that could be drawn out if it was your job to be making laws and a lot of wisdom from those thoughts. Uh, In Monty Python, I can't remember where it was. Well, they said, what did the Romans ever do for us? What, what Monty Python was that? We don't know, do we? Was it the life of Brian? What did the Romans ever do? What did the Romans ever done for us? Yeah, what have the Romans ever done for us? Well, roads. Yeah, well, what have the Romans ever done for us apart from roads? Well, there's roads and there's uh, Latin. Yeah. What did the Romans ever do? Well, you see, you see where it goes like that. What have the authorities ever done for us? What the author- what's David Cameron ever done for me? What's Jason Kitkat ever done for me? What's, what's, what's Gareth Davis ever done for me? What have these people ever done for me? Well, actually, you have running water. A lot of countries don't have running water. When I was in Sri Lanka a few years ago, they said, we wish we had running water. We wish the government could get round to providing us with running water. But well, we have running water, don't we? And we have uh, power that doesn't come on for one... one uh, one hour a day and then go off again, although on Friday it did. Was it, was it last Friday or the Friday before? Uh, but generally speaking, we have power. Well, what have the state ever done for us? Well, they've given you water, and they've given you power, and heat and light, and education. And you might say, well, the education system is totally corrupt. Well, actually, have another think, because if people couldn't read and write, we really would be in a mess. But we would have very high standards of literacy, compared with much of the world. So what have they done for us? Well, they've done quite a lot in terms of education. Uh, security, well, you say, well, people are street drinkers and uh, um, graffiti and, well, yeah, okay, there's, there's always problems. But have you noticed that in England, everywhere, people leave their cars on the streets at night? You, you've noticed that, have you? In some countries, you wouldn't dream of leaving your car on the street at night. you bring it into your compound and lock the gate. And in England, people don't have bars on their ground floor windows, do they? They have sash windows. Uh, around here, you have sash windows. Uh, and people don't get their windows broken. Well, we should thank God for that. We, what have they done for us? They provide us security. And they provide a transport system. So you can actually go to London and work. You can go and visit your auntie in York or wherever it is. And we actually have all sorts of things that the state does for us. Uh, and this, uh, for this, we should thank God because it has come through God's deacons, uh, the, uh, the various authorities. So let's move on now to motivation, which is the third thing where have I got to verse 5 therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of wrath or possible punishment but also because of conscience this is also why you pay taxes for the authorities are God's servants so i give you this he goes on to motivation why should I do this why should I do this I don't it go, you might say well, for me it goes against the grain Well, he gives one reason. He says, to avoid punishment. So he he says possible punishment in the NIV, which does link itself back to the wrath of God. To avoid punishment. To avoid being fined. To avoid being imprisoned. And to avoid having to do community service. I know that the justice system is not perfect but neither is it totally random and totally unreliable. So if you are given to smoking various illegal substances uh, and you get fined, uh, please don't ask the church to pray for you that it wouldn't happen, because I don't think the church would pray for you. If if you're smoking illegal substances and you get fined, uh, you should have not smoked the illegal substances. Uh, If you got on the train without a ticket, don't ask the church to pray for you because you were thinking of putting the money in the collection anyway. Uh, You should not have got on the train without a ticket unless there was a very, very good reason. And if you got fined, then that's what happens. Uh, If you are uh, a bit short of money and you decided to go and help yourself to the things in Aldi and go out without paying and you got caught and you got taken to court... Court, C-A-U-G-H-T, and then you got taken to court, C-O-U-R-T. Uh, then, uh, please don't ask the, the, the church to pray for you. Uh, you know, if you were shoplifting, then uh, you shouldn't have been shoplifting. The punishment is there to deter you. Why should you do this? It is necessary to submit to the authorities. Well, because of possible punishment. It's there for a reason, and it's right that it's there for a reason. Second reason is conscience verse 5 not only because of possible punishment but also because of conscience so what he's saying here in a very quick way is there's not only that you might get caught but even if you know you're not going to get caught or even if you might not get caught there's something inside you your conscience which says that's still wrong you shouldn't be doing that and you need to listen to that voice of conscience So that's something that God has put there too. Motivation for conscience. So even if you're not going to get caught and you know that they don't give parking tickets if you leave your car on those double yellow lines, you still shouldn't leave it on those double yellow lines. And even if you know that it's very unlikely for somebody to go through your computer and see how many of the programs on there you haven't paid for properly, you still shouldn't download pirated copies of things for conscience's sake. And the third motivation, he says, this is why you pay taxes. Well, you're already paying taxes. You're already getting water and light and heat and uh, all those sorts of things. You're already involved. It's too late for you to back out and say, I'm not going to have anything to do with this society. They're all pagans. They're all, they're all uh, idiots. You know, you're already signed up for power and electricity unless you live in a hole in... Um, in a hillside in wales where conceivably you might not but most of us don't and aren't you're already involved so motivation you can see how it will get shorter now and i realize i've only got this sheet of this sheet to write on and then he brings it down to some specifics and he says uh, verse 6 and 7 uh, he says the authorities are god's servants who give their full time to governing Give everyone what you owe him. interesting that he he seems to imply there's a sort of contract there. There are things that the state might ask of you that you don't owe them. So I don't think we owe our state unquestioning obedience to everything they say. I think we're allowed to go to the state and say, are you sure you want this? Are you sure you're right about this? You were supposed to tell me something you haven't told me, so you're not asking me to do the right thing. I think we're entitled to to question, but, uh, question and dispute and challenge even, but he does say, give to everyone what you owe him, and he goes through a list which apparently means direct taxes and indirect taxes, and then he talks about respect, and then he talks about honour. Whatever you owe... Pay. So I had a thought about this. I mean, the tax is, is fairly obvious. There is a difference between tax avoidance and. Wait a minute, which one is it? Tax evasion and tax avoidance. So, tax evasion is when you do something illegal, isn't it? That's the right way around. Tax avoidance is when you use the legal system to be wise about how you use your money. And although people get up in arms and say, oh, Google and Amazon are are, are evading taxes, if it's it's a little bit unfair to do that. If it's wrong, then make it illegal and then demonstrate that they've evaded tax. Uh, So I just want to say something there about taxes. Uh, we pay our taxes willingly. I think we try to avoid paying taxes that we 're not actually bound to pay don 't think that that 's dishonorable don 't think it 's dishonorable to be an accountant, in other words, for the accountant 's present. There was an accountant last week, but he 's not here today uh, So some things about taxes, some things about respect it 's quite common i 'm thinking about local politics now. For council officers to be treated with, a, with immense disrespect uh, it's quite common and if I was a council officer I really wouldn't like it council officers I know there are exceptions but by and large council officers work very hard and take their duties very seriously and do the best they can with, uh, uh, with insufficient resources or sometimes with insufficient resources I'm particularly thinking of just from personal experience of uh, the head of City Clean, who's Mike Moon, who has actually come along to St. Meetings, and I've met him. And each time I've met him, he's come with a, um, a sort of strained-looking face and a weary, uh, and a weary demeanour. And I say to him, "How are you today, Mike? Are you okay?" And he said, "I've just been at this awful meeting." And then I was at an awful meeting before, and I've got an awful meeting afterwards and you think, poor chap, he really doesn't want to be here. So I say, would you like a cup of tea? Just sit in the corner for a bit, and, and we'll, we'll try and make it as, as, uh, as easy for you as possible. And I think it's worth thinking there are human beings on the, end of, you know, on the end of all the letters to the Argus. These council are bonkers and, and everything else. We may well disagree with some of the ideology of our elected representatives, and we might disagree with some of the policies that have been worked out, certainly in, in local council level. But there is some respect that they are due because many of them work very hard. And even if you disagree in all sorts of ways, there is some respect that is, that is uh, owed, it seems to me. Well, it seems to Paul as well. And they said, if honour, then honour. Honour. So again, it's it's a very common thing to to mock politicians as being in it just for their own uh, good and uh, out to make a killing uh, and milk the system. And I'm sure there are politicians like that. So I'm sure there are politicians like that. I think, in my view, that we are blessed in our country that many politicians are not like that. So I'm just going to cough. <coughs> so do you know how much a counsellor earns? This is these counsellors that milk the system and put all the money in their own pocket. Do you know how much a counsellor earns in a year? 12,000 pounds, about 12,000 pounds. So it seems to me that 12,000 pounds for being a counsellor is not in it for the money. I think many if not all the counsellors are in it because they care, they want to try and make a difference. And when we think about the council, I'm going off on a hobby horse now. When we think about a council raking on all those parking fines and all that money, and you think, you know, look at the council of fat cats taking in all that money. What do they do with that money? Doesn't go in their pockets, does it? It just goes back into providing other services, excuse me. (coughs) And I certainly, i speak personally, I wouldn't like to have the responsibility that some of these people carry. I wouldn't like to have to be Ian Davy, who goes along to meetings, and half the people shout at him for not bringing in a parking zone. They say, we can't park anywhere. And the other half of the people shout at him and say, why don't you council do something about it? It's very difficult to be a politician, and I know some of the local politicians on a personal level, and I'm sure that on a, on a national level, it's even worse. How many of you would like to have the job of deciding how to divide the cake of a, of a budget, whether it's nationally or locally? Because really, people aren't always very nice to you. You, know, you. you make a decision, and somebody is bound to be up in arms about it, and they'll call you all sorts of names. I think we need, there is some honor to be paid, if honor, then honor. Uh, so there's some specifics there. I have a footnote, and then we close. I have a footnote about a time when the power of, there was the power of the state, and it was wrongly used, and there was a defeat and an overcoming and the state thought that it had overcome one weak lone man and the state in its folly condemned him to death but this lone man was not defeated and overcome by the power of the state but rather he in his weakness overcame the state and I'm referring well I could be referring to martyrs who were told by the state to worship the emperor and they didn't and they overcame the beast by the word of their testimony. But I'm thinking predominantly of Jesus, who was there on his own, faced with the might of Pilate and Caesar. He was respectful, he was calm, he was dignified. They still crucified him. But in his crucifixion, he won the greatest battle. He overcame. So it's now can be said that Jesus Christ is Lord of the princes of the earth and he is King of kings and Lord of lords and one day his lordship will not only be a fact but it will be a visible glorious fact. Let's sing together.